We plan to talk through the issues faced by startup founders and the people close to them. That overused phrase, work-life balance. It is an amazingly focusing time. This is what we do, you know, aside from our families, this is our whole work life. I'm also known as Dr. Wine. or her significant other would both get value from the episode. So Ryan, you have this incredible resume or CV or portfolio of things that you have done and do. You're a speaker, an author, an expert. You've worked for lots of different kinds of organizations. So I'm really privileged to get some time with you today. But I want to ask you a question that maybe isn't asked of you often. And that is, as you look at all of the things that you've accomplished at this point in your life, is there any foreshadowing or any moment that you can remember as a kid where there was a little bit of a trace of who you've now become? Well, first of all, thank you for having me and uh, very pumped to be here. That question actually is interesting because oftentimes you have to look backwards in your life to find moments that really capture your present day story from growing up. And I would say one moment in time was when I was a kid, I used to call Larry King's radio show. And I was a 12 year old boy in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, with an extremely high pitched voice. He nicknamed me the Red Baron. And this is before uh, Larry King got his TV show and became super famous. So he was uh, doing this Open Phones America He'd take calls from all over the country. And here I am like calling his show at like 10 o'clock at night when I was supposed to be in bed. And so I was always really curious about media and technology and connecting with people. And he invited me to dinner when I was visiting Washington, D.C. with my family. And so my family uh, went to this restaurant called Duke Zebert's. It's no longer around anymore. It's in DuPont Circle, Washington, D.C. I wore a red sweater because my nickname was the Red Baron. And if you can imagine, I was a squeaky 12-year-old, awkward, you know, very high-pitched voiced kid. And here I am meeting Larry King. And so I was always curious about doing random things to, you know, push myself and connect with other people. And I also interviewed Barbara Bush when I was in fifth grade in Des Moines, Iowa, which I thought was fun and cool because she came to my elementary school during the Iowa caucus. And so I always had these fun moments of getting myself into conversations with people that were somewhat famous or influential in the case of Barbara Bush and Larry King. And then funny to bring it all full circle. I live in Los Angeles now and I have gone to breakfast with Larry King quite a few times is a Jewish deli that he loves in Beverly Hills. And he uh, saw me for the first time and he said, the red Baron returns, you know, and he said, uh, the red Baron's back. And he's like, I'm wearing red for the red Baron. And he of course played it up. I don't know if you remembered who I was, but that's not what Larry King does. He's so great at being amicable and getting along with people. And so I feel like from a young age, I was always very curious about how to connect and communicate with people, especially people that maybe I looked up to or that weren't necessarily easily uh, accessed. What did you you call to ask him about? Uh, I called about sports. Okay. I called about how uh, I would ask, you know, what he thought about the Miami Dolphins or Detroit Tigers or... How Andre the Di- I was a Cubs fan growing up, and how Andre Dawson was 
going to do uh, for the Cubs that season. So it was just, it was very quick, two, three minute phone calls. And I probably called them, you know, 10 times. Was there a part of you that thought, oh my gosh, it's Larry King. Like he doesn't want to hear from me. I'm just a kid that you then like had to override that thought or did you just not have that thought? Yeah, I thought, I thought the, the opposite of it. I thought I was a kid. And so I was completely different than everyone else. And how funny is it? You know, my older brother would listen to it and we would just laugh because I'm like acting like I'm buddies with this guy and known him for, <laughs> for years. But meanwhile, we're just bantering about sports. And so I looked at it like I was calling a show that mostly adults listen to. Yeah, I thought that it was a, a fun thing to do that maybe would change things up. So even then you sort of knew your competitive edge or that you had this unique attribute that would set you apart from the rest of the Larry King crowd. Yeah, that was the goal. I mean, there's a lot of, he had a lot of regular callers. And so I knew like some random kid in the Midwest with a high pitched voice asking about the Chicago Cubs. It's probably not his run of the mill caller. And I think that's why he remembered me. And it was funny because the last time, you know, before we met for dinner, He's like, the Red Baron, whenever you're in D.C., come say hi to me. And I said, sure. And so he put me on hold and said, OK, you got to call my producer tomorrow. So I called this woman, Judy Thomas, you know, on my landline growing up. And it was his producer. And then she coordinated the whole the whole dinner experience for us. It was pretty funny. That's awesome. You've and you've made a lot of your career based on your ability to find a unique voice. Because you are, you know, you're a speaker, you're a coach, you've written about the influencer economy. And of course, those are activities where there are lots of people doing those things. So figuring out how to find that unique edge, has that always been kind of like a superpower of yours? Or is that something that has been hard to do sometimes? Yes, I, uh, the majority of my professional life working at startups and in entrepreneurial companies, I've had success. Like one company were acquired by Disney, another company was acquired by Warner Brothers, and I, I live in Los Angeles, and these were all social media-based content, YouTube network, um, entertainment companies. And at each of those jobs, I had people that would would take credit for my work, they would steal my ideas and really my my effort, and then package it up into their own work and get credit for it. And I was laid off from Disney, actually, and it was kind of sweet in the end because I was laid off and I got a severance. And then I found a better job at this other company, Machinima. But my boss got fired a couple months after I left because I was doing all his work for him. And that's the story, well, that was the story of my professional career, was often getting overlooked and not noticed. And so when I started my own career path with writing books and you know coaching and speaking, that was the first time I really owned my, my work, my story and my experiences in a way where I wasn't competing against that person at the cubicle next to me. I was competing with, you know, a lot of other people. And it was my own, you know, sink or swim mentality that I had to either put up or, or go back to the corporate world where I was always feeling undervalued, like many people can identify with. And now that you've made the jump into entrepreneurship, where you are, you're working for your own your own self. Nobody signs your checks. What do you, what do you like about that shift? I like the shift because I can finally own my company 100%. And a little known fact in working for big startups or corporations or anywhere where you have a boss is like part of your job is to give them the credit for what 
you're doing and that's part of the team mentality. Um, but now I am the person in charge of the team. And so I, I like the pressure of actually having to deliver on my own deadlines and not being managed and being able to, to book my own gigs. I used to do stand up comedy and it's really hard to get gigs on stage. If you're trying to get it to the improv, you just have to book your own gigs, get one foot in front of the other. And so I take that mentality with my own business now. Are there parts of it that are harder than you expected? Are there ever moments, you know, in the middle of the night when you think, oh, it'd be nice if someone else just told me what to do and then gave me money? Yes, absolutely. The, uh, the part that gives me the most stress is when you have a client and they don't pay you on time. And there's something so nice about getting that direct deposit from your boss in the company you're working for every month, you know, at the 31st or the last day of the month that is regular and it just creates less stress because you know, it's going to be there. And, you know, right now I'm, I'm sure you can identify, I have clients, you know, that have not paid me in five weeks and they're your friends and you have written contracts, but you can't really enforce them. And people don't always pay you on time. And especially the bigger companies, right? They're the ones that often take advantage of you because they can, and they know you're just a vendor. So that's incredibly stressful that no one ever tells you that's in the fine print of the uh, entrepreneurship toolkit is that uh, people won't pay you on time. And that's incredibly nerve wracking. Yeah. Especially with people you have a relationship with. Like I'm waiting for a couple of checks from people that I, you know, care deeply about and have had a great working relationship with. And it's like, huh, how many invoices do I need to send you? Like how much of a squeaky wheel do I need to be? Which now I sort of resent is what's happening in our relationship. Yeah, totally. There's definitely like a fine line because you don't want to be perceived as being a jerk, but then you also have bills to pay. And I find it's really hard. Oftentimes friends are not my ideal clients for that very reason, because you have to push them to pay you. And because you have that friendship, oftentimes they think, oh, it's Ryan. He's my buddy. He gets it. I'm a small business owner too. But ultimately, yeah, you got to at times, you know, drop the hammer and tell people, hey, this is your invoice again. And this is your retainer again. And I can't talk to you anymore and continue working if you don't pay me immediately. Yeah, absolutely. So on to like a little bit of a lighter subject. Talk to me a little bit about life in comedy. And how like comedy connects to startups. Yeah, what, when I did stand up comedy, there's a lot of parallels with that and entrepreneurship. Because when you're a comedian, it's lonely. And it's different than improv. Improv and sketch comedy, you have a team on stage. But stand up itself, the art is being all alone in front of a bunch of strangers and letting your guard down and being candid with yourself and being vulnerable and open. Because oftentimes you have to be self-deprecating to get laughs. And you have to disarm people in the crowd. So when I was booking my own gigs, you know, that's really what the parallel is. Like you, as a startup founder, you don't have any doors opening necessarily for you. You have to often barge into doors and, and open them through your network and connections. And stand-up comedy, I have one memorable experience. I was in Baltimore, Maryland at a dive bar, my first time ever going on stage. And people were flicking cigarettes and like threatening the comedians. And I got heckled. I got called worse names there than I ever did getting bullied growing up. And I could barely get through my set list. And I ended up leaving with like still a couple jokes left. And there's a secret in comedy where if you see someone on stage with a cocktail, it's most likely not alcohol. And they have a cocktail napkin that is their set list of all their jokes. And so I feel like I learned a lot through that experience. You always got to get through your set list. 
And so now, because and ultimately you're doing it for yourself and getting your reps to, to get better in comedy. And so now whenever I'm pitching or presenting or selling my, my work and my business, I always make a point. I'm, I'm going to get through this PowerPoint. I'm going to get through this meeting. I don't care if you're a complete jerk and you're not going to hire me. Because I, I, I learned that I have to do it for myself. And I can't just rely on people to welcome me in every environment. And I've even done comedy in rooms where I think, you know, as you know, I'm a white male. And I've done comedy in rooms where it's an African-American crowd. And that experience was amazing because you realize what it's like to be on stage and have people just like laughter is universal. And it was uh, one of these things where like getting through that kind of experience and getting laughs from people that may not even relate to you was something that as an entrepreneur, you have to figure out that not everyone's going to get you, but you have to hook them in a way that matters and meet them at their level. What do you tell yourself in your own mind during those moments when, you know, people are flicking cigarettes, butts at you or, or like, you know, in your heart of hearts, like they don't want to hire me. They don't like me. They don't care about my message. Like, how do you kind of shore up your internal resources in that moment? It's not always fun. And it's, it sounds to, not at all fun. It's like the, yeah, the opposite of fun. And you have to check your ego and understand that you're there to meet the audience at their level. And if you're not doing that, then that's on you. Oftentimes, comedians, like you go to these clubs and people are stressed. They've had terrible days at work. Their boss is yelling at them. They came to eat greasy chicken wings, drink some watered down Bud Lights and laugh. But oftentimes you get people that are, you know, their, their arms crossed and they're not looking to laugh. And so you just ignore those people. And I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, like, and I'm, I'm sure you, you get this all the time, you, you need to move on to the next person. Like there's so many, you know, fish in the sea. There's so many people out there to, to work with you and to collaborate with that you just got to move on to the next person and accept the rejection and, and, and understand that it's painful, but realize that, you know, we're in a limitless world right now. And there's so many people that you can, can work with and to not spend time with the a-holes that are going to be uh, negative influences in your life. Yeah. I know from your own podcast and from some of your writing, you've You've talked with people like Brad Feld and Rand Fishkin about depression and anxiety, and you've been somewhat open about your own journey with depression as a younger man. And I guess I wonder why it's been important for you to talk about that so publicly. A lot of reasons. The, the main one was I felt like these stories are not told enough. And so many people only talk about depression when they're successful, right? And it's like, great, you've reached this point where you're worth a million dollars, so then you can talk about depression. And I felt like it was really important to tell that story along my journey. And because if it was more real to me. And I, I had a friend once, because I was self-conscious about talking about the depression. And, you know, I was clinically depressed in my early 20s while I was doing stand-up comedy. And I'll let you be the judge if I was funny or not. But ultimately, you know, putting one foot in front of the other got me to realize I'm much better as a marketer than a comedian. And I don't have to be the star on stage. And so that experience has formed me to this day. And I feel like if you don't talk about this stuff, like there's always these people when something traumatic happens, like, you know, when Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, they, they lost their lives on their, you know, and it was so tragic. And people will say, well, you just got to ask for help. Why didn't they ask for help? And how do you do that? You know, your own, your own echo chamber and your own mind, like getting into your own head and so I feel like if you can be on the offensive and realize there's great things in life, like I love watching 
baseball and I love going on walks on the beach and I love talking on podcasts. But ultimately, you know, if you can't just accept that there's dark moments and put yourself on the offensive, then maybe people that don't want to talk about it or get defensive about it, you can maybe open up and help shape their perspectives. Have those been particularly difficult conversations to have in the worlds of tech and marketing, which from my, I don't know if I'm an outsider or an insider, I haven't quite decided. You could, other people can decide, I guess. But from my perspective, those, those fields seem particularly wired to keep up the appearance, to impress the funders, to make everything look sort of sassy and like you're pivoting. I mean, it just, it's a particularly hard part of, I guess, little corner of the economy in which to be vulnerable, open it's about impact. things that are broken. Look, it's like you're weak. If you talk about it as a man, especially, you're weak. And you know, you're all these different synonyms for being weak, right? That we talk about as men. And and I feel like I've worked for so many founders that have been undiagnosed bipolar. And there's so many highs and so many lows. I think it does reframe how you think. Mm-hmm. And the excess is like the whole founders that work for a startup, they have their own companies, their mood is the organization. So if they're low, everyone's low. And we're forced to have this false bravado that everything's okay and that we're all going to make it together. And I feel like the more you can let the team in, like we are stressed right now. We love your support. And it's the opposite effect. Then you're not being weak. You're being strong. And you're letting people into the process of the ups and downs of a company. And you can't be afraid of losing people. I think leadership in our country, based on a lot of the people I talk to, is changing. And we've taken this step where all these males that are often white that have gotten like Elon Musk, for example, like there can't be another version of him because if you look at him, he's a sensitive bully on Twitter. And I feel like the next generation of leadership really is more empathetic. And I think that's a big buzzword right now, but you can't call yourself empathetic as a man because there's just constraints. And so I feel like there's still not enough discussion about it, but what happens is if I do talk about it, it helps me figure out myself most importantly. It helps me figure out who I am. And I always get people that come up to me and say, I went through a divorce and what you said really resonates. Or I get it because I was laid out from my job and I was in a funk for six months. And so having those conversations really makes it all worth it. And it's, as you know, it's risky. Yeah. And that's, I think the scariest part is people judging you. And I had someone in my family, my in-law heard a podcast about me talking about depression on a solo episode. And then they like judged me to my wife Mm. and just, it was like, oh my God. And so I feel like a lot of times your family can't even get it. Mm -hmm. And this woman, my my in-law actually had dealt with mental health issues. And I was like, wait a second, I thought you'd support me. I didn't think you would be judging me based on my opening up about my history. Yeah. Sometimes the closer people are to you, the harder it is for them. It's a little bit, the mirror is a little bit too close. It's too real. (laughs) Yeah. It's easier to talk about it to your therapist, but not necessarily in a public forum, which I don't care anymore. I have no hangups. And I almost stopped talking about it, but people told me that they wanted to hear that story yeah. and that even now more than ever. And so here we are. Yeah. Your brand, your book, the umbrella under which you operate is the influencer economy. And can you tell me what you mean by that? Like, what does it mean to be an influencer 
I'm aware of our last, you know, just the last question I asked you and the way that I think your ability to be open and public about topics like depression has shaped and changed the conversation that we have in public. So I would call that influence. But what do you mean when you, when you think about what it's like to be an influencer? Yeah, I think it's really, the word's been stolen, first of all, by a bunch of no talent zeros that make money on Instagram by promoting products. And when I defined this era of influence, I felt like the word influencer was a game changer. And they often use social media, blogging, and growing their platform to develop their influence. And now the word, if I had to do it again, I would not brand myself under this. But at the end of the day, it's a trendy word. And you know, it used to mean tastemaker. It was someone that really was on the edge of helping you create cultural shapes and, and shifts and trends. And now it's just become, I'm going to tweet about a product and get paid $10,000. And so when I defined it, I meant you need to ignore vanity metrics. Followers are a fake superficial metric, uh, impressions on your website, and actually engagement matters, conversation and interaction. And that's where I think that the word has changed and been, been stolen. And so when I talk about it, it's game changing. It's like, how can I make an introduction to help you grow your network? Or how can I help you to solve a problem that makes us both money or how can I make it a win-win scenario where we're truly collaborating and it could often be through social media, but not necessarily? I think a, a chunk of the listeners to Zen Founder are folks who have come from a technology background, maybe are programmers, coders, designers, who are making the transition into entrepreneurship. And I think that the influencer aspect of that process can be much trickier than it sounds. So they've, they've got a product or a service, something that they love that they've worked on. What are some of the things that you like to encourage people to do maybe early on in the business to help conceptualize themselves as influencers, like sort of wrap their mind around this new identity that you take on when you become a business owner who is promoting your work? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a, there's a, symbi a symbiotic relationship between your company and you. And the term personal brand gets thrown out all over the place. And it's so, it's like repellent, right? I don't want a personal brand. Just sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> Just being yourself. You don't get paid for being yourself, unfortunately. Very few people can show up and collect a paycheck. And you have to build yourself around your company. But your personality edge is what defines you, right? And that's what makes you unique. And so, you know, getting back to finding your voice... I'm a firm believer in creating a bold vision for yourself, a bold vision statement to think about what your longer term ideas are and strategies to execute from for your company. And then you figure out what your personal platform is around that. And that could be public speaking. That could be a podcast, a book. It could be generating sales leads or figuring out how to pitch yourself better. But ultimately, you have to find that platform to align with the big vision. And there's a, a guy named Scott Belsky who wrote a book called Making Ideas Happen. And he talks about how we're dreamers, doers, or incrementalists. And typically, we're one of those three types of people in the professional world. And so the dreamers, big vision, they're a thinker, they're, they're often in sales, they're driving the business forward. The doer, their job is to kill 90% of the ideas of the dreamer. Because you don't want to turn into an incrementalist, where you're doing a lot of little things reasonably well. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where most of us struggle is we try to water down our pro we water down our product because we do too much, and we can't blog and speak and build products simultaneously. And so I'm always advising people to think about their bold vision statement and then what their platform is and pick one. And then once you can 
assert yourself as a leader in your category, then you can diversify that story to other platforms. But you want to be known for something for people to call you for. And so people often call you, I imagine, because they're like, hey, I want to get into podcasting or hey, I want to talk more about how I could be a better leader and find balance in my life. And so a rhetorical question I always ask people is, what do you want people to call you for? Mm. And that's often your platform, that, that area that aligns with your bigger vision so you can execute. How do you answer that question? What do you want people to call you for? That's the problem is that <laughs> people have called me for influencers and I've been branded as this person. They're like, I don't care about influencers. And so they won't necessarily, I have to convince them in a way that, and I, I made a mistake. I didn't intend this, but you know, now I want people to call me for helping them tell their stories. And I want people to understand how powerful their stories are to be candid with themselves and maybe do the work it takes to figure out yourself. Because when I figured out my stand-up comedy depression story, I helped find clarity in myself. And even if I don't tell anyone that story ever again in my life, at least I know it for me. And I feel like a lot of us, as you know, as a therapist, sometimes it's about editing yourself mm-hmm. and not looking back at these terrible moments, but reframing them and thinking, okay, these are wins. They're not losses. And how can I let people in to help them, to teach them you know, who I am as a person? Because they're actually defining moments that we often ignore because we have ego, bravado, and, and some toxic thoughts about what it takes to be a leader. Yeah. How do you recharge at this point? I, I recharge often with my wife. You know, if I take a solo trip with her with no children, I've very young kids at home and two and four. So that's great. I recharge. I do yoga. Uh, I did it yesterday. I do it as much as I can twice a week, three times if I can. Um, I find that Shavasana, the nap at the end of people call it a nap, but it's really a meditative state. That makes me so happy. Uh, I also do no screen time. Like I know we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and yoga is a great way to not be on your screen. And so I, I try to avoid thinking about anything else that's worrying me. So it's hard though, right? Because we can't find enough time to really recharge ourselves. But ultimately, yeah, through physical activity, through time alone with my wife and no screens is, is a start for most of us. That's a great foundation of starting point. Yeah. If I could get most of my clients to do those three things, I would be, they would be in better shape. <laughs> I, I have friends that make fun of me for doing yoga. You know, they're like, you know, what are you doing? You're not even exercising. <laughs> um, so even that is hard, right? You're just carving out. And so at the end of the day, it's like, how can you just make yourself feel refreshed yeah. and rejuvenated and and it's, it's to each their own. But yeah, I think no screen time is an underrated, I know you agree, Absolutely. way to just get out of your own head and be present. Yeah, put the phone in the drawer. Yes. Well, I've uh, taken a chunk of your morning today, but any last thoughts or ideas, anything that feels unfinished that you want to circle back around to before we uh, end this this episode of the Ryan Sherry Show? Yeah, I I think that you brought up a really great question around how to talk about mental health or burnout with people who are in the marketing and entrepreneurship world and how there still is a stigma. And so I think that collectively people need to find ways to take action to connect with other people. And that often just getting to the real emotion of what you're feeling, if it's, if it's controlled and regulated is, is important. And I, often talk to clients and I tell them 
that we may need to get uncomfortable if we work together before we can get comfortable with what we're building with your brand, your story, or any identity that we're collaborating on. And so I, I would urge people to understand that you get uncomfortable with people. It, it's a way to get comfortable. And it's just a couple minutes often. And it's so hard and scary and daunting, even interviewing people on a podcast, you know, you get that, that moment of uncomfortability when you're, you're getting ready for the interview. And so I think that, you know, embracing uncomfortableness is like one of the more underrated approaches to just getting comfortable and, and dealing with a lot of the stress in your life. Yeah, absolutely. When I was a postdoc, I was on these weekly conference calls with these really preeminent leaders in, in my field of study at that point. They probably wouldn't be names that are known to this community, but I would get so anxious and like nauseous and just almost unable to speak because I was so anxious about these phone calls because my part of my job was to kind of facilitate or lead the conversation. And it took about three months before I was getting real comfortable and cracking jokes and, you know, like had relationships, but it was three months of like weekly nausea <laughs> to be so uncomfortable and scared. But eventually you get used to it and it passes. You can have you hard be, conversations. You become that person that you try to become because you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have, uh, you just reminded me, I, I gave a talk at this realtor conference recently. And I, I sometimes do this when I give talks I say like a, a swear word and then I ask if I can swear mm-hmm. and then it opens people up because they think, okay, this guy's letting his guard down. And even if it's a word like badass, which isn't necessarily a swear word anymore, if you ask people for permission to swear, it really, I found it like I, the second they, they, one guy in the front row was like, yeah, it's what he say? He said like, it's exhilarating or he had some word that was really interesting. I knew I won the crowd over. And so I find that often asking people for permission to do things like swear or give feedback or be honest and candid is, a, is an approach to connect with audiences very fast. And that could be in a business meeting or you know in front of a crowd on stage. Well, that's a good place to leave it. So don't hesitate to swear and often get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it makes you feel like nauseous, <laughs> like you just said. But it, at the end of the day, it's, that's where I think our problem is in a lot of our culture right now is we can't be honest with other people. Yeah. And so there's, there's all these topics that we tiptoe around that are very important to everyone. Yeah. All right, Ryan. Well, thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, for folks who want to um, stalk you online, what's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, they can stalk me on Instagram at Ryan J. Will. My website's influencereconomy.com. And my podcast, if you search Ryan Williams, and you're a guest on my podcast, so they can hear the other side of this conversation if, when they check that out. And that's where you can find me online. Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes too, for those of you who are driving or can't write that fast. All right. Take good care, Ryan. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Zen Founder. Our theme song is A New Beginning by bensound.com used under Creative Commons.